you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. The idea of decolonisation in architecture and indeed elsewhere in society has made some people very anxious. Um, Noises have been made about histories being rewritten, um, the past being erased and other things too. And to talk about this and to make clear what decolonising is, we have Dr Neil Chassor. He's an architecture historian, also writing a book for the Reba on this. Professor Corinne Fowler, Director of Colonial Countryside and National Trust Houses interpreted and students uh, Harsha Gore and Jasmine Lawrence from D, the Decolonised Architecture Group. But before we hear from them, I'd like to play a clip from the conversation that I had with Angela Saini, the science journalist and author of Superior, The Return of Race Science. And I asked her what her take on decolonisation was. It's become a very fraught phrase, um, decolonisation, and sometimes I hesitate in using it because it automatically switches some people off. Really, all it is, is giving more context, historical context to um, ideas that we already have. Now, and this is true globally, when you go to any museum, national museum, um, it presents a vision of that state in the most positive light. That is normal. That is true if you go to a museum in Egypt or India or China or wherever it is in the world, that's normal to do that. The problem with these kind of... um, nationalistic versions of history which every country employs is that they leave out so much and it's very difficult in the in a social media age in an internet age to maintain those fictions (laughs) because people just go online and they know that britain was involved in the slave trade that the empire was was terrible that it committed so many wrongs and led to the deaths of so many people that it was not welcomed in the way that some people have hoped that that um, we could, you know, characterise it that way. Um, so when we have these counter histories, and then we see these nationalistic histories in museums or in the official history books, um, there's a dissonance, and uh, people want those full histories. They want to understand not only because they, you know, they want the facts, but also because in a multicultural country like the UK. Um, where we you have people who are, have been part of those histories. My grandfather fought in the Second World War for the British. My great-grandfather fought in the First World War for the British. Um, empire and colonialism is a part of my personal family history. I want that reflected in British history because they were also part of British history. Um, and to not see that reflected, then obviously you feel left out and you and and it's only fair that they should be. That is all decolonization is. It's not really anything more than that. It's just about giving all that extra context. I've worked with a few museums over the last year or two, 
on this topic and I've seen firsthand how difficult it is within institutions to confront this because they are they serve so many different masters not just the public who are demanding this there's also a section of the public that are demanding that we don't do anything there's also the staff who very often demand that we do do something and then there's a the government who demands that we don't do anything so you have all these different voices who want a stake in this narrative what does it mean to be british you know what what does the history of britain mean and how are we going to tell that story that is a fundamental question and it's a question that all countries around the world are facing including here in the us and i think if we are going to build a notion of britishness that is truly inclusive that is fair and tolerant and not just tolerant but welcoming you know that really celebrates what Britain is now, then we have to expand those histories and we can't be nationalistic or jingoistic about it. We have to do it in an honest way, not least because if you don't do it in an honest way, people can just go online and find out for themselves and then they feel they're being lied to if you don't get that honest history. Whatever statues you choose to leave up, people can just go online and learn for themselves the true history. You know, you're not fooling anyone. Well, Doc, uh, Professor Corinne Fowler, Director of Colonial Countryside, do you agree with Angela? Yes, I completely agree with everything she said. I think there's an issue when you mix up historical evidence with national pride and that when you see history through a, a lens of guilt, shame or celebration, you're always going to leave stuff out and it's always going to be a very partial, selective history. So. I mean, basically, I can't ever see how there can be anything wrong with more information than less information. You know, why that would be preferable is is a bit of a mystery. But it's also about giving that fuller history. Um, and the reason that people are often resistant to hearing about that history is because it's unfamiliar. It's not something that people really learned at school, even though there are 400 years or so of British colonial history. It's not something which a lot of people know very much about. So there's a bit of a knowledge gap, which is what partly triggers people when we try to talk about that fuller history and have a more, well, perhaps fuller disclosure, really. Harsha, um, you are part of this group, De Decolonise Architecture. Can you tell me a little bit about the group and what you're trying to do with the architecture curricula in universities? Uh, yes, of course. Um, what we have been working towards is creating a format of education that is more holistic. It's free for all and it's trying to be more inclusive in the way that architecture is taught to us students. So that means expanding the history curriculum that we learn, since it often does not include notions of colonial histories or it does not necessarily paint a picture of the wider architectural context. So what we are working on is a student-led initiative to try and broaden the horizons that we see in architecture school so that we graduate as more well-rounded architects by the end of it. And Jasmine, uh, you know, you're also part of this decolonised architecture group. What has been your experience um, of learning about architecture uh, and architecture history that feel felt like there was something lacking, there was something missing? Um, I think the main thing for us, which we picked up uh, during our undergraduate education, 
was the Eurocentric nature of the history and theory course. Um, and this is something which I think is widespread at universities across the UK. And so there's this real focus on uh, Western architecture and particularly um, what are known as star architects like uh, Corbusier and not so much, um, you know, very little mention to global architecture uh, or those which are non-Western. Um, even when we had learned a little bit about uh, more world architecture, it was often in uh, vernacular forms or uh, demonstrated uh, or taught to us as something which was primitive, um, primitive even, uh, which wasn't necessarily um, correct or uh, an accurate view. Neil, you, you wear a number of hats. Um, you're, you're CEO of the London School of Architecture. You're also an architecture historian. So when you are considering decolonisation, what does that mean for the profession from your perspective? Uh, well, it's a slightly difficult question. I mean, if I can go back to the, to the clip um, mm. and this idea that decolonization decolonizing is just about giving more context or just extra context i think where the phrase is used i would i would sort of treat that cautiously i think that's i think that's important yes but i'm not entirely sure that's what decolonizing or indeed decoloniality uh is actually decolonial praxis is actually asking us to do and i wouldn't want to sell it short in a way because i think giving extra context in museums and uh, public institutions, great, totally for that. More inclusive, more diverse, absolutely. That's not quite what decoloniality is asking us to do. Uh, decoloniality is uh, really trying to get at how our whole knowledge system, right, what we might call our epistemes, is rooted in coloniality. And coloniality is something that is distinct from the political, physical, geographical act of colonizing, of colonization, of colonialism. It's as much a mindset and a descriptor for a set of social, cultural, political, economic relations that can uh, uh, happen in advance of political colonization and indeed endure beyond political decolonization. And so what it is encouraging us to do is to respect the fact that there are other ways of understanding and being and knowing and living in the world, not just uh, European, Western European uh, ones that grew out of the Renaissance and the, and the Enlightenment, and indeed out of the project of modernity uh, more generally. So that's what I think get, can, can, can be really exciting. And it is why decolonizing architecture, to an extent, if you sort of accept that rubric, is fundamentally paradoxical, yeah? Because architecture is absolutely born of that context, of that mindset, uh, of that epistemic tradition. Corinne, you're nodding away there. Um, so you agree with both Angela and, and Neil in terms of, you know, what we should be aiming to do around decolonising architecture? Yeah, I mean, obviously, my expertise isn't in the area of architecture, but it's right that it does go deeper than just more knowledge, uh, fuller, you know, fuller history. It's about rethinking uh education system, as was said, ways of knowing other forms of knowledge, 
in non-hierarchical ways, because this is always the problem that, that we often have, uh, that it, it's a very deep way of rethinking everything and not uh, and just being aware of our thought processes and the systems of knowledge which we've internalized as normal natural and the right way to be but it's not it's, it's not sort of fetishizing um uh, it's not it's not primitivizing i think it's a, it's a really important um word that jasmine has 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 introduced to 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 the conversation nor again sorry to take issue with your previous contributor is it really in my mind about multiculturalism it's actually about a wonderful rich hybridity right so it's not about going back to pure forms of uh, of knowledge in West Africa or in Asia or in East Asia. It's not saying that we need to return um, uh, to those quote unquote primitive uh, ways of knowing or being. It accepts, it accepts, yeah, this is a really important point that often gets missed in the public discussion. It accepts uh, that uh, coloniality and colonialism uh, happened and that we're in a very complicated, messy, hybrid world. And it just allows us, nonetheless, to bring into re-existence, uh, which is a phrase that you, that you, that you read a lot in de decolonial uh, discourse, bring into re-existence ideas that were otherwise repressed through coloniality over the past X hundred years. That's the problem, though, isn't it, Neil? That, you know, uh, someone like Corinne, he's, he's been very vocal, very visible in uh, in 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 uh, whatever the opposite of of uh, repressing is <laughs> like that that reawakening of these realities uh, i mean corin you you faced some real harsh difficult painful backlash i mean what's that been like just just yeah. by opening up that conversation well um all all i did was co-authored a report with the National Trust about its country houses connections to empire. Um, I mean, I just to respond to the previous point, I, I wasn't saying any of the things that I think you thought I was saying, Neil, um, at no, no, all. No, the clip, I, I the don't clip, not you, you, not you. Oh, right. I, I wasn't saying anything about primitivism, just in case um, anyone thinks that. Um, yeah, I... Um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty intense. It was simply releasing a report to open up the conversation about the history which was being missed out when people went to visit national trust houses. And as you know, it's a very large organisation. It's got five point seven million members, and the backlash from government ministers, from the fifty six Common Sense Group MPs, from the newspapers. Uh, I mean, Twitter was relatively kind. It's just six months of horrible newspaper coverage with very little right of reply and all the the um, hate mail that then comes is a, a, a common experience, unfortunately, in the present moment for uh, especially people of colour, but also women and academics who were working in this area. Um uh, Harsha, if I can ask, as you're in a university environment, by opening up this conversation, what kind of reaction have you had? Um, I'd first say we've been very lucky with the reception that we've gotten at some of the universities that we've managed to reach. Um, I would like to actually maybe acknowledge the fact that as 
um, Angela said in the clip that you played as well, the generation that I live in, we are so attuned to social media. We're always on the internet that we're constantly learning. And we've, I feel like our kind of the ages that we work with are quite absorbed in like the way that we kind of process information so we've been very lucky that the reception that we've gotten has been very encouraging very um, positive and we've been able to really speak to people in our cohorts across universities about how our educational experiences have all shaped us into really wanting something more out of this and we've been able to have quite free and open conversations with people our age which has been very refreshing to have actually. Um, Jasmine, I don't know if that was a, a disclaimer on Harsh's part to say having great conversations with people her age, but what about when you're approaching tutors, when you're approaching the institutions, are they as open as your your student peers? Um, I would say on the whole, so far, yes, although we have received a slightly mixed response in terms of some of the student stuff forums we've held. Um, but I think in terms of the kind of scale that we've experienced, it's been uh, on one side, there are tutors which are really enthusiastic um, and positive about making their own uh, steps towards change uh, within the bounds of the curriculum, because of course uh, there are restrictions um, in terms of following the accreditation requirements. Um, so it's actually really quite encouraging to see kind of their own little changes and the ideas that they've come up with to get around uh, certain aspects of the course that they felt needed improving um, but I think on the other hand sometimes uh, there can be a little bit of defensiveness which comes along um, but again I think we've been quite fortunate because even when we have witnessed this later down the line it seems that the same people uh, have then started to understand um, the stance that we've been coming from and again have really shown um, I guess growth and enthusiasm for wanting to kind of join that change. So Neil, you know, listening to, to, to that conversation, do you think you might be too, too, too many steps ahead of where the profession and, and individuals and education might be? In well, terms I'm, of... all, I'm always too many steps <laughs> of course <laughs> I should note as well that Neil's wearing a black polo neck. Um, um, so, you know, really seriously, though, I mean, you know, that kind of opportunity to, to, to really bring people back to some basics. Um, you know, how do we do that? It's difficult because uh, it's difficult because people do, you know, they find this very scary and it's it's uh, actually very heartbreaking to hear Corinne's description of her experience for the for the amazing work that, that she's done on colonial countryside. Um, I suppose. And perhaps naively, um, my my way of thinking about it is that the whole uh, idea of decolonial practice praxis seems to invite such creativity and such imagination that um you just got to keep going with it you know it it it, it will it generates so many uh, ideas and different ways of looking at and understand and understanding the world i mean i i i i smiled inwardly when jasmine was talking about 
you know, the the meeting the blocker of 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 accreditation. You know, if only if only we had a platform, <laughs> you know, in which in which a validating body might be listening to these to these questions. I yes, and there is something also I think inherent in decoloniality, in particular when it meets something like architecture and something like the Royal Institute of British Architects, that it would involve to an extent. Uh, Turkey's voting for Christmas because if you really kind of want to take it to its kind of radical uh, uh, conclusion, it might mean that this particular form of practice and this particular discipline called architecture may not may not actually survive uh, unscathed, right? It may not look exactly as it looks. I make the point also that that um, uh, this is only obliquely related to your question, but you know the RIBA. As I've, as I've argued before, and I don't say this, you know, in an, in, a, in an accusatory way, but as Corinne put it earlier, as a sort of as incontrovertible evidence has it, was an imperial institute. Yeah, it sat at the nexus of an imperial system of architectural uh, regulation and education. Has, has the RIBA ever sat down and reflected on how it might undo some of that, uh, I guess, central pseudo-imperial control? Has it reflected about its international strategy, uh, its international engagement strategy, about diversity, issues of diversity inclusion? Of course, your appointment, Marsha, is part of that. But, you know, that that has taken a long time to to happen since political decolonization, you know, beginning, I suppose, in earnest really, in the post-war period. We're discussing uh, decolonisation in architecture with architectural historian Dr Neil Shussell, Professor Corinne Fowler, who's Director of Colonial Countryside, and students Harsha Gore and Jasmine Lawrence from the Decolonised Architecture Group. And Neil, just before we went to Alicia Keys, um, you were asking, well, you know, the, the RIBA, it's, it's very existence, it's an existential question to be considering decolonisation. And I think... The, from my perspective, certainly just opening up this conversation has just got to be a good start to try to look at that that word royal at the beginning of the even the name of, of the organisation. And, you know, Corinne, this is very much uh, when you're looking at institutions and uh, deep um, stately history, uh, for, for want of a, a better term. This is really what you've been looking at and trying to to open up those conversations. It can be seen as a can of worms, of course, but, um, you know, opening up those conversations, how important is it to you? It's critical. And I think quite often you have to start at a very basic level so actually knowing what that colonial history is in the first place is a really good start. And it's incredible how little is known, even to the point where if you ask anybody in an organisation things like, what was the East India Company? Uh, what did it do? Who was ruling in India before the East India Company came along? You know, what was the British involvement in slavery and how did it make itself manifest how long did it go on for I mean these things we need to actually know to start off with in the first place and that's what we were trying to do with the National Trust to actually do 
a desktop survey, which of course is always something which is useful starting place, do a desktop survey of all the research findings so far on the colonial history of your own organisation is a very important starting point. But a lot of the history that comes out can be really quite fascinating, um, sort of nuanced, complex, and it's it's very unique. So, for example, I was the other day at a house called Sesincott. I don't know if anyone's been there, but it was almost the start of a kind of Indian architectural style in Britain. And uh, my colleague, Raj Pal, who is an historian, went with his goddaughter, who is of Indian heritage, and she found it really inspiring and said I, she couldn't believe that she'd lived 50 minutes drive away in Birmingham from this amazing Mughal-style palace in Cotswold Stone. Um, and she didn't know anything about it. She'd never been there before. And it made her feel not that she was ignoring the violence of colonial history, but that Indian connection was made manifest um, in, in the countryside, in the British countryside, in a way that made her feel curious and excited. Um, but I, th I think it's, it's also understanding those material histories, isn't it? The history of copper, the history of ironworks, and, and how all of those things, those material histories, are connected to British colonial history also. Jasmine, when you hear Corinne talk there about, you know, sort of the, the depths of the history, so you start to, to dig and you start to peel back a layer and then there's another layer and then there's another, you know, can you, can you cope with all of that whilst you're still trying to study architecture at the same time? Um, I must admit, it can be quite overwhelming <laughs> sometimes, you know, trying to uh, make change in this, um, in this field. But I think, uh, I guess sometimes it is just about managing it and trying to break it down. And um, I think especially for us, the kind of work that we do and our objectives um, are broken down in scale, I think, especially for this exact reason. Um, so we try and obviously we have like an overarching game and we would like to ultimately uh, help to decolonize the curriculum, but we recognize that's a long-term goal and it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of years. It's very ambitious. Um, and so, yeah, we try and break things down and think about, okay, what can we do right now which will still work towards making an impact for that longer term goal and ultimately help with the education I think which Corinne uh, mentioned as well about all of these histories which are just yeah layers and layers deep um, and I, yeah I think that really kind of helps to to not feel so helpless towards that overarching game. Harsha, when I was asking a question to Jasmine, I, I noticed something about even the way that I phrased the question in that, uh, you know, you have to peel back these layers whilst also studying architecture. And there's a sense that actually architecture in itself, though it, it is integral to it to be able to study it in a way that um, is really acknowledges all these things that you're trying to bring to the fore. Absolutely. I one of the things I kind of was thinking about as you were asking was just 
how we can try and bridge that gap between understanding about decolonization being quite this like academically focused objective that it currently is and trying to take away from that notion that it has to be done in like this academic or theoretical setting and making it more digestible and accessible to readers or anyone of any age. So one of the things like Jasmine said, since we're kind of trying to work at smaller scales at a time, one of the things that we're also trying to do is just broaden the horizons of where we can learn about post-colonialism or decolonialism form. So it doesn't necessarily have to just be academic books. We're kind of looking at maybe pushing for, you know, music or films or storybooks or books written for children. And just as long as we can try and find adjacent reflections to stories of decolonization or stories of migration, for example, it makes learning about this environment a lot easier and a lot more digestible. And then it's kind of then more possible to pick it up and scale it up because you kind of understand the emotions that run behind it as well, which we think is kind of key to making this something that we can achieve somewhere down the line. Neil, um, the other point that um, Corinne was making there was about this survey of colonial history of, uh, like, say, for example, if it were of, of the RIBA, it, if we were to run that kind of thing across our 50,000 members. What sort of questions do you think would be useful to ask in terms of trying to just gauge a sense of, you know, do you know the history, the colonial history of, of an organisation like the RIBA? Um, it's a difficult question. Uh, well, that would, be a good, that would be a good one to start with. <laughs> um, uh, I think it might also... Well, look... I, Marsha, if I can answer the question slightly obliquely, because I think what Corinne said was really was really interesting, that, you know, we don't actually have, I think, uh, an especially good account of how uh, architecture was implicated in coloniality and in colonialism in the first instance. And I think that often the mistake uh, that is made is that architectural history is viewed solely as a history of design. Design is 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 part of this, um, but not all of it. So we need to understand how, for instance, in the 1880s and 1890s, in particular, the RIBA began to forge alliances with other colonial architectural institutions throughout the empire. Uh, we need to understand how that how this inflected the RIBA's kind of inter international engagement strategy, the kinds of discourses that that created about uh, about development. We need to understand its material manifestations, as you know. I've I've discussed in particular about Empire Timbers, the use of Empire Timbers at sixty six Portland Place, and there are other examples we could we could think of. And then the other thing that we have to resist, just to come back to design is which is my problem you know the, the, the sort of problem that I um, uh, landed on earlier which is it's not just about more context because actually design uh, we could argue um, has a lot to do with coloniality uh, because what it does for instance with vernacular or indigenous um, traditions is translate them into design but that whole process of translation into a framework called design, something that is taught in university, something that we do, something that we understand through texts and diagrams and plan and section and elevation is arguably all part of 
coloniality. Yeah, it's 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 trying to force a different knowledge system into a, a pre-existing hegemonic one. But that is precisely what decoloniality is asking us not to do or to think differently about. So I'm not sure that helps with your questionnaire. I'm still I'm still I'm I'm I'm, mull I'm mulling that over. I mean, I think you'd want to know you'd want to know something about that how people uh, how people do engage with other kinds of uh, other kinds of knowledge about architecture and, and 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 design what their international links are you know i did feel i'm sure this isn't the case now but you know that the riba's international strategy you know 5 or 6 years ago which was about which was about expansion into in of the membership into india and into the into the middle east actually was done remarkably uncritically i mean of all the places to start and we're going to can, be I, can I just add yeah. something there? Sorry to interrupt you there, but um, it, it's just that I, I was so interested by what Neil said and it got me thinking more about design, even design, that if you look at a lot of uh, big old country houses, the design is so seemingly disconnected from the where the money came from <laughs> um, because quite often if you've got Palladian architecture or you've got these great big pillars you've got some houses which are kind of uh, neo-gothic I mean I'm not an expert in architecture but but quite often um, you get these places like Penryn Castle which looks like a kind of gothic castle and the the point being that it was a way of distancing the owners from the origins and the colonial origins of their money. So what appears to be, uh, you know, a very old castle is actually trying to get away from the idea that we're new, we're new money, we're East India Company nabobs or we are uh, slave owners um, or enslavers. So I think it's really also important to think of those aspects of design, even when you're looking at design and also think about, yes, what do we already know? What research has already been done? How can we put this all together in one place? But also ask questions about where the money came from for any organisation. That's always an interesting uh, set of answers you get from that. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, just to uh, pick up on Neil's point about, you know, uh, the, the way the RIBA is, is spreading globally, um, that we are speaking about international architecture and international architects uh, in the next hour with Aslina Bulma, the, the director of um, international here at the RIBA. Um, could I, Marsha, could I just, um, could I just, just say one more thing about that then, which is, again, I... It's not just about under the kind of rubric of decoloniality, de just about other architectural institutions internationally. It is critically about other ways of knowing about building and living in an environment, both built and natural. And I think that that would get, become really exciting if the RIBA were able to engage with those different knowledge systems on a on a kind of equitable on a kind of equitable basis. In particular, in particular, in an age of you know near ecological collapse and climate catastrophe, where there might be some really some really good ideas about how to live uh, in other uh, epistemic traditions. 
It's been a real education, isn't it, uh, Harsha and, and Jasmine? Just listening to these two, uh, I, I, the faces. If I if I say you look like you're really absorbing, like you might do in a lecture. Um, but going going to you, um, Harsha, to, to you know, you, you've got these um, this this campaign, if I can call it that, uh, to deco- uh, um, decolonize the, the curricula. What is it that you're actually asking for at this stage from the schools of architecture? That's a that's a good question. Um, I think I would kind of pick up on what Neil was saying and try and phrase it that way is that what we're trying to examine is that decolonization, like Neil said, isn't just necessarily about learning about that one, you know, 200, 300 year period, but it's also trying to learn about dismantling the kind of power structures that we do live in and understanding that colonialism means upholding this certain sense of hierarchy regardless of whether that's in a social context an academic context so I guess what we're looking for is a more nuanced way of being able to speak about this process of like breaking down these power structures and this hierarchy and trying to make it a level playing field for everyone that wants to get involved in this profession or in this educational process so I guess that would kind of be like where we are trying to broaden our conversations currently it's just understanding that decolonization doesn't necessarily have to end up becoming or focus around this notion of race and racial kind of injustice but it's also genuinely speaking about how the way we are taught things or the way we operate in the spaces that we live in does tend to fall into this certain system of being able to be this able-bodied person that can access things the way that they've been designed and instead of living in this very idealistic, perfect world, creating a space where we understand that flaws and kind of drawbacks do exist. And as long as we know that these broader horizons exist, we start becoming better designers, hopefully. So I guess that's the kind of conversations that we're trying to have at this stage. And Jasmine, you know, what's the next step for your group? Um. Well, I think over the past year, we've seen quite a lot of growth. Um, so, of course, we, uh, each of us on the committee at Decolonise Architecture originates from the University of Bath. And so a lot of our work um, has kind of stemmed from that university. And we've been involved not just within the architecture and civil engineering department at Bath, but also across different, different faculties as well, which has been really uh, quite exciting to see. Um, But actually, we've already started um, making connections at other universities. So we've worked with uh, Glasgow School of Art um, and recently Cardiff University. And I think we'd really like to continue this trend because the kinds of things that we've been uh, observing and changing at Bath and at these different universities, which we've connected to, are, of course... Um, kind of representative of universities nationwide, again, kind of linking back to uh, the uh, RIBA and accreditation. And so what we're really eager to do is kind of form this network um, of students at different universities, which can all work um, holistically towards the same goal, essentially. And Corinne, if I can give you the the final word uh, on on the future and, and thinking about you know, there, there is some hope here in terms of being able to pull apart these conversations, you know, the, the students working on 
on this and, and working, you know, broadly on it as well, it, it should give you some um, optimism for, for the work around, uh, you know, decolonisation. Oh, yeah, I, I've got total optimism. I, I think that there is so much happening across the heritage sector, museum sector. It's so exciting to hear this conversation about architecture too and I, I have every hope I think there's been a sea change I think the ship will take a long time to turn but it's already turning I'm sure. Architectural historian Dr Neil Shussell, Professor Corinne Fowler, Director of Colonial Countryside and students Harsha Gore and Jasmine Lawrence from the Decolonised Architecture Group speaking to me about decolonisation. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. 